Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at electronic music, how it all came about, the scientists that were involved, and we might even give you guys a chance to make some yourselves. We're also going to be looking at some stories about dogs, sperm, and native birds. So stay tuned to Fuzzy Logic this Sunday for a whole heap of fun science fun. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Thanks for joining us again this Sunday. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you listening uh, to us on this beautiful day outside and it's also a pleasure for me to have uh, a couple of people joining me in the studio today. Uh, Welcome along, Alice. How are you going? Well, thanks, Broad. Good. You're having a good weekend so far? I am. I got a sneak preview of the Santa Fun Run this morning down around the lake, which was fantastic. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, very good start to the weekend. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to taking part in that in a couple of weeks. I don't know how uh, sweaty that Santa costume is going to be. They looked very sort of run-friendly Santa costumes. They okay. were more like short shorts for Santas and short-sleeved shirts for Santas. Oh, they were well thought out, I think, for good. running. Okay, well, that sounds good. Good. And uh, also joining me in the studio today is Blair. Good morning, Blair. Hi, Brian. How's it going? Good. Good. You having a good weekend? Oh, amazing. Amazing weather. Um, I'm really pumped about it. Yeah, it is. It's such so nice to finally kind of be, although technically we are in spring still, being in November, but um, the sun's out. It's beautiful. Um, 30 degrees. If only we had a beach to go down and swim in. Yeah. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> Anyway, we might get on to hot weather a little bit later with one of our science stories, uh, but for now, let's have a look at uh, this day in science. Of course, today being the 25th of November, a few interesting things happened this day. Uh, back in 1844, we had the birth of a German gentleman called Carl Friedrich Benz, a mechanical engineer who designed and built the, words, the world's first practical automobile to be powered by an internal combustion engine. That was back in 1885, and that was a, a two-stroke engine, uh, which after a couple of years' work, he finally got running, and he took out a whole lot of different patents on that one, uh, and of course lent his name to the uh, Mercedes-Benz company. Um, and uh, he actually has the uh, the title of being the first person with a driver's license. Um, I Did he complain about his photo in his driver's <laughs> license? Is what I want to know. I'm Were there sure. even photos for driver's licenses back then? I don't know. Um, well, what was it? Eighteen. 18- 85? Oh, my memory's not good enough to know whether they had photography back then. You could probably pretty much do whatever you wanted back then anyway, so you didn't <laughs> need a licence. Well, I wonder. I actually wonder who he got his licence from. Like, did he make it up himself or just, <laughs> just, just went to the government and said, you need a driver's licence? Um, but, yeah, very interesting there. Um, also on this day, in 1922, archaeologist Howard Carter opened the first of two doorways to the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Uh, in his diary, Carter recorded noted seals, opened the first doorway, which comprised rough stones built up from the threshold to the lintel, plastered over the outside face and covered with numerous impressions from various seals of Tutankhamun and the Royal Necropolis Seal. As we cleared the passage, we found mixed with the rubble broken potsherds, jar seals, and numerous fragments. These were disturbing elements as they pointed towards plundering. And the next day, they opened the second doorway, and uh, 
then of course we're plagued by Tutankhamun's curse. That's what I was going to say. Was this the curse where everybody seemed to die within about a year of going into the tomb? Yeah. How yeah. old were these people, though? <laughs> and statistically, somebody's got to die. Maybe it was just bad luck. Yeah, maybe. Or, look, or maybe there was just some ancient Egyptian flu that was sitting around, some uh, bacterial cells that hadn't died and... Quite possibly. But they weren't just flus. They died in slightly strange circumstances, I think, a, b- a bunch of different sort of accident-related deaths, if and memory serves. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I guess they didn't have, like, good OH&S policies back then. No. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just hard working in a tomb. Things fall on you. Possibly. 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 And I think, look, if it's, it's also that thing about luck. They say if you think you're lucky, you will be lucky. Maybe these guys were all... Once a couple of them went, the rest just thought they would be unlucky and... Mm. You just followed them around. <laughs> well, I wonder if that has led to sort of superstitions about going into tombs. I know uh, the Shakespearean play Macbeth, you're not allowed to say that word under the arches, so in a theatre, uh, because a similar situation, the very first production of Macbeth, almost everybody in the cast died within a year. So now you're banned from saying Macbeth under the arches. And if you do, your punishment to get rid of the bad luck is to run around the whole theatre three times, which if you imagine at a big theatre or a big opera house takes quite a while. I wonder if there's similar sort of luck warding off ideas for future archaeologists. I'm wondering that since this is a science show, we should propose that someone actually tests that uh, <laughs> scientifically. Because I don't know if it's uh, that sound. It depends if you get people who are unsuperstitious enough to break the curse. Some people take it very, very seriously. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, some people are superstitious and some are just a little bit stitious. Oh, dear. Also <laughs> on this day back in 1905, um, which kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about. Um, but in 1905, they had the first US advertisement for a radio receiver appearing in uh, this issue of Scientific American. Uh, it was for a Telemco, which offered it for $8.50, uh, a complete outfit comprising one-inch spark coil, strap key, sender, sensitive relay, coherer, with automatic decoherer, and sounder, and uh, four extremely strong dry cells, all the necessary wiring, uh, and full instructions and diagrams. Uh, so this was actually a radio that was suitable for sending dots and dashes, not full audio, unfortunately. Um, but the advertisement also said it was guaranteed to work up to one mile. Uh, so some pretty impressive stuff, being able to take it on uh, and uh, make up your own little radio back in 1905. Um, and today, I think, Blair, you're going to tell us how to take apart a radio a little bit later on. <laughs> I'll certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, we can we can make more than dots and dashes with it, though, can't we? Yeah, you can make some pretty annoying sounds. <laughs> All right, well, if you want to make annoying sounds, then keep listening and uh, we'll tell you how. Um, but let's get into some more science for now. Um, there's been a lot of uh, science happening every week, as usual. And uh, with the hot weather coming along, uh, it's not just... Uh, people that suffer from the hot weather you know it's animals it's uh, insects as well and uh which insect are you talking about with the hot weather today alice well i have a slightly cryptic question uh, mm. for the listeners and for broderick and blair what do kids playing under sprinklers and dung beetles have in common hmm. funny answers are okay here um i want to say elytra but that's uh sorry a what you know the the <laughs> now I'm being an entomologist nerd. Um, <laughs> you know those little sort of heavy 
I don't know what you call them. It's like the carapace or something that flips up when the beetles fly. Oh, okay. But children and don't kids have, have them. those too. Yes. Maybe if they were wearing capes stupid. and being Superman, they would be a little yeah. bit alike. Yeah. Well, in that case, <laughs> I, was, I might give you a bit of a hint, unless you've got a guess, oh, I was going to say, they're both pretty dirty. Like little kids running around the sprinklers on grass, they get mud all over them. And young beetles, I feel, are just dirty because they play with dung. Well, quite possibly. That's one possible link. The other link definitely relates to temperature, though, and the idea of a summer's day. Both of these groups of critters, so children playing under sprinklers and dung beetles, use evaporative cooling to keep cool on hot summer's days. So researchers looking at dung beetles have discovered that the South African dung beetle stands on top of its moist dung ball on hot days to help it keep cool. As the moisture from the dung evaporates, the dung becomes cooler than the surrounding soil. And that's pretty important because in these areas in Africa, the surrounding soil can reach over 60 degrees on a hot day. So it's very, very important to keep your feet nice and cool. Uh, We experience this same process of evaporative cooling uh, when water, so water from running under a sprinkler or from jumping out of a river or even sweat on our bodies evaporates and it leaves us feeling cooler. And you can do a quick experiment to prove that uh, if your hands are not grubby, as Broderick has said, by licking one of your hands and then blowing over them. And you'll find that that hand feels much cooler than a hand that you have not licked. So the researchers looking at these dung beetles found that on hot days, the beetles spent more time perched on top of their dung and that they spent less time on their dung ball if they were wearing silicon booties to protect their feet from the hot weather. I don't know how they put the booties on the no. dung beetles. I would like to see a YouTube clip of that. <laughs> but there we go, using using some pretty funky technology to keep themselves cool. Cool, yeah. I just want to know. I just I want to see these dang beetles with the little booties on. Like they, <laughs> they felt they were really cool. Like, Maybe oh, it felt man. awkward and strange, yeah. like gum boots, and you're a bit, yeah. a bit clumsy walking around in them. <laughs> Sounds like good fun. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's move from uh, dung beetles to uh, dogs now, player. Yeah, uh, one of my favourite animals. Yeah, yeah. Much. Well, they, they like, unlike dung beetles, which are probably smelly. Dogs like smelling. Um, Dogs can be smelly. They, they, they can be smelly too, I guess. Um, well, this has nothing to do with um, smelliness. It actually has more to do with um, the way dogs associate words with objects and, and how it differs from the way humans do. So it's a study that's come out of the University of Lincoln in the UK. And um, previous studies have shown that humans between the ages of two and three typically learn to associate words with shapes of objects rather than, say, the size or the texture. So, for example, a toddler... Um, will learn that a ball, um, like w- what a ball is basically, um, well, let me just explain this. <laughs> Sorry. So basically they'll be presented with a ball and then they'll be presented with objects of similar shapes, um, sizes or textures um, and they'll identify similarly shaped objects as a ball as well. Do you know what I mean? So mm. they, use, yeah. they use shape as a grouping yes. mechanism yeah. rather than colour or texture. Yeah, basically. And earlier research with dogs has shown that they can learn to associate words with categories of objects um, such as toy, but whether the learning process was the same as uh, humans was unknown. So basically they did a new study. They had a five-year-old border collie called Gable um, and they presented her with similar choices to see if the shape bias existed. Um, and they found that after a brief training period, Gable learned to associate the name of an object with its size, identifying other objects of similar size by the same name. So it was a size thing. Um, but after a longer period of exposure to both name and an object, the dog learned to associate a word of other objects of similar textures, um, but not to objects of similar shape. So basically, 
it's it's textures and size um, that dogs associate with words rather than um, shape. Okay, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you could have a a, a, a basketball and a I'm just trying to think of a well, and a volleyball because they're quite different textures, especially yeah. like the rubber outdoor basketball with yeah. the pimple skin and yeah. and the smooth volleyball, and yeah, they'd be able right. to tell the difference between those. Yeah, instead of us looking at it like it's a ball because yeah. it's the same um, shape, I suppose. Um, yeah, they would be looking more at the textures, textures. Yeah, and the size. Wow. Apparently. Which is yeah. definitely different to people. If we were um, trying to describe an object to somebody, if we were in a car park and we said, go and find my car, we'd probably say it's the blue car or it's the large car. We'd be unlikely to say it's the certain textured car. But maybe if dogs were writing books and having conversations, they'd be using different descriptors. Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose that, <laughs> that is more useful for us, though, because... Um, cars in their categories are all pretty similar textures and so we can use other descriptions mm. to to just differentiate between them but i wonder why it's useful for dogs to be so texture dependent i guess they use their mouths a lot to uh picking up spiders yeah. things, things yeah. Well, i suppose yeah furry things are yeah. good to eat and yeah. <laughs> um, spiky things aren't so nice to eat and maybe that's that's how they go about it mm. very interesting um Speaking of dogs, Alice, uh, you've got a little story about dogs as well. Sure, just a short one. Uh, It looks at the way that dogs think about their toys and and some scientists uh, have been looking at the way that dogs interact with different toys and which toys they seem to prefer. And they found, although this may seem fairly obvious to some dog owners at home, uh, that dogs think about their toys in the same way as wolves think about their prey. And so by knowing this, we can design dog toys that work well for dogs, but it also sheds some light on why dogs have a habit of eating things or playing with things that we might prefer them not to. (laughs) So the study found that dogs prefer soft, easily malleable toys that can be torn apart and that make noises when they're played with. Hard, unyielding toys, while easier for owners to clean up and chase down, uh, were much less exciting. So um, that's great. We can have squeaky toys. We can have chewy toys. We can have toys that fall apart over time. But uh, many of the things that dogs end up eating as puppies that we don't want them to, like shoes, unfortunately fall into that same category of being squishy, being easily malleable and being reasonably easy to to tear apart. Luckily, they don't squeak. I would not encourage shoemakers to make squeaking (laughs) shoes or the problem is going to get much, much worse. Uh, but that's why. that they, they resemble prey that dogs can chase down, rip apart, pull to pieces uh, and enjoy watching them move from a whole thing to a thing that's degraded into smaller pieces. Uh, but one of the best ways to engage a dog's interest in a toy, no matter whether it's a hard, boring ball or a lovely, squishy teddy bear or shoe that they can tear apart, is for an owner to play with the dog. Which is fantastic if you yeah. want to engage their enjoyment, but maybe not so fantastic if you chase the dog angrily who has your shoe, who may misinterpret this <laughs> as a sign of playing and a sign of fantastic things to come in the future. True. True. Well, I actually wonder, like, if you purchased um, a, a second pair of shoes, you know, when you go out and buy a new pair of slippers, um, you also get a second pair, or you go to Target and get a really cheap pair or something like that for the dog to play with as well, whether they'd prefer their own pair or whether they would prefer yours. I think, in my experience, because they're social animals, they like things that you like. So I've got a funny feeling, as much as that might be a great idea, it might not quite work. Uh, So maybe you just have to pretend to like the cheap slippers at first and then they can chew them. I had a bad experience where we were fostering some puppies and they decided to chew up some very expensive headphones. (gasps) 
that uh, we thought were tucked away, but um, they weren't. <laughs> but they had these cute little chew marks all through them. <laughs> and they would have been uh, very easy to tear apart yeah. into separate little bits. They really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> we designed for dogs. Well, my my mum uh, keeps chickens and dogs, and she was really really nervous when they were first introduced that the dog would try to eat the chickens. And it turns out they only target the little chickens and only when they squeak. So once they grow older and they stop making a baby cheep cheep squeak squeak noise and make more of a crowing noise, the dogs totally ignore them. So she only has to keep the cheeping squeaking ones off to the side because they look exciting. Once they grow older and make grown up noises, the dogs ignore them completely. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting stuff. Well, speaking of growing up. Um, an interesting study out this week uh, from the University of New South Wales that shows that uh, how healthily we grow up and, and how, we, how we begin our life might have something to do with the quality of the sperm that um, helps make our little baby. Because, uh, of course, the egg and the sperm come together to make babies, and I'm not going to go into too much detail there on a Sunday morning. Fantastic learning experience for all of our younger viewers. Yeah, Ask your look, parents. Th- there's enough birds and bees out today that I don't need to talk about them. Um, but what, what's, uh, re- what everyone knows, well, most people know, is that half your DNA comes from your mum and half from your dad, and so that's half from the egg and half from the sperm, and they combine to make person or baby. Um, and that's definitely the case. Uh, but what they've actually found is that uh, the actual traits of the sperm or the egg can also affect the baby as well, not just the DNA inside them. Um, and uh, initially, it was originally thought that eggs could do this because they're so much bigger than the sperm and, you know, it's considered that, that they're, uh, they could transfer material other than DNA uh, to influence the offspring and how it might grow, and that's quite reasonable. But it was always th- thought that sperm were just little vessels to transport DNA into the egg. Um, but new studies uh, using sea squirts have found that this might not be the case. Um, now, I really like this study because of the, the reasons they used sea squirts and the way it was carried out. Um, and it was uh, Dr. Angela Crean from the University of New South Wales who chose sea squirts to experiment with uh, because they're easy to study because they simply squirt their eggs and sperm out into the ocean. So rather than um, in uh, other animals where it all happens inside the female, it's quite difficult to track and, and see what's going on. This stuff all gets squirted out into the ocean. Um, and so uh, these ex- scientists uh, collected healthy sperm from a um, single ejaculate of a particular male. And then they basically use these to fertilise an egg, eggs in two batches. Um, they fertilised a batch of eggs straight away. And then half an hour later, they did the same thing again. But in that half hour, uh, many of the sperm in the stored sample died off because they weren't long-living sperm. They were just, you know, some of the weaker sperm that just disappeared. And what they found was the offspring from the uh, eggs they fertilised later with the longer-living sperm actually survived better than the ones they um, fertilised initially. Um, And so it's a really interesting question as to why, because these larvae were more likely to survive the first few weeks in the field and to see what's going on. Um, And, and yeah, it's a great question because it's something that we can look at in uh, IVF in humans. You know, while it's not uh, necessarily directly relatable because they haven't done any human studies so far, um, uh, it's it's an interesting sort of idea to look at how we could uh, take out the... um, the lesser sperm and just inject the long-living sperm, whether we do just let them sit for half an hour or (laughs) whether there's a a more scientific solution than that. But it's certainly an interesting idea that sperm could actually affect the health of the baby. Mm. And and I guess in a normal... 
in a normal inverted inverted brackets commas bunny is way of of reproduction happening in humans is a fairly long and scary journey for the sperm to get uh, from the beginning of that journey to the egg. So maybe mm. that weeds out some of those weaker sperm. And if you're mixing things together in a petri dish, maybe the competition isn't quite there. Um, can I link, Broad, to something else that's happened reasonably recently yeah. in science in terms of ter- terms of talking about sperm being squirted out? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the Melbourne Cup, which was fantastic and which the whole of Australia gets involved in. But there was another really big event that related to sperm that happened around about the Melbourne Cup, which <laughs> happened off the coast of Queensland. Oh. Uh, it was the biggest orgasm <laughs> in the world. It happened off the coast of Queensland and it happens every year and it's called the coral spawning which some people who've lived up north might be familiar with. So an area that's the size of 70 million football fields, so that's about how big the Great Barrier Reef is, about 75% of the coral of those 70 million football fields all reproduce at the same time. They all squirt their eggs and sperm up into the water column, they mix <laughs> together and they make babies. So it's the largest orgasm in the world. But in terms of scientific studies of this, mm. it reminded of something that happened at an aquarium in Townsville a couple of years ago. Uh, there were some researchers from the local university who were planning to catch the eggs and sperm that were going to be released by the coral and watch the way the babies grow up and it took a whole year of researching to plan they built these big uh, egg catching devices that looked a bit like giant tea bags so that the eggs and sperm would float up into the tea bags and they'd tie them up and it was fantastic but they made a fatal error in letting a young, very keen but not super detail-oriented research assistant do the actual catching of the eggs and sperm. And unfortunately, when they caught them, they put the eggs and sperm of two different types of coral together in the same bucket. Oh, no. Interesting. So, so a whole what year's worth of research, they went, oh, no, this is awful. They said some words that can't be repeated on radio and went to the pub. Uh, and the next day they came back and very, very surprisingly, little baby coral had formed. They'd crossbred cool. from two different species of coral and made a whole new species of coral. Which and a whole since, new study. Yeah, which has since <laughs> been named scientifically. whole new area of study. So it's an official species of coral now, which I think points to the idea for those scientists who have a bad day at work, go to the pub. <laughs> uh, and, and things tend to get better from there. And you have new babies in the morning. Correct. Yeah. So many different That's ways. really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so did they name it after the uh, the young researcher who no, made that mistake? No, sadly, as often is the case in these sort of things, his boss got to do the naming and she named it after a friend of hers, which is a bit unfortunate. I think he was just happy not to get belted over the back of the head too hard for making this mistake <laughs> that meant it took another whole year to do the original test. True, true. A lucky break, and that's... Often how a lot of science happens is the lucky break. Mm. And in fact, we might talk about another lucky break just after this song uh, where Blair's going to take us into the world of electronic music. And that was Aha there with Take On Me, a fantastic example of uh, some 80s synthesizer-style music and uh, pretty awesome uh, stuff with the synthesizers and music and there's a whole lot of science behind it which I didn't realise until Blair started doing a whole lot of research and into it and telling me all about it. So she's come on the radio to share it with you today Blair and uh, how far back in time do we have to go for the start of electronic music? Like for me it's it's the 80s like, that's when yeah. it started. That's, 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 I mean, <laughs> to not be that fair I'm... you went alive before the 80s Broad. I, well, I was alive in the 80s uh, I don't know how much music I was listening to <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's where it goes back to for me, yeah. um, looking at the world of music. But where does it really start? Well, I'm, I'm definitely no historian, but um, <laughs> it definitely goes way back to sort of the late 1800s. I think people were sort of starting to mess around with these things. But um, 
Actually, the first sort of um, commercially available electronic instrument was developed in the 1920s. Have you heard of the theremin? Sheldon Cooper is a big fan of the theremin and the Big Bang Theory is my main familiarity with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you might actually be aware of it um, more than you think. Uh, Is anyone here a fan of Doctor Who? I was very scared of Doctor Who as a small child, but my housemate is trying to re-educate me into watching Doctor Who at the moment. Yeah, well, is, um, is that just because there's the hot Doctor Who on? No, I think I think David Tennant was much more attractive than the new Doctor Who, but okay. we'll be here talking about that for a while. I so agree. No. I agree. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've got a bit of a clip from the um, '60s Doctor Who. Here it comes, and we'll hear the theremin in a minute. So that's that, that yeah. kind of a UFO sound <laughs> coming through there. Um, so yeah, typically I think people think of it as like a really eerie, sort of weird, spooky um, instrument. But it wasn't actually always the case. It sort of that started happening in the '60s. Um, but I'll tell you the backstory behind it. So it was basically developed by this uh, Russian guy called Leon Theremin. So it's named after him. And he was an, a scientist, a physicist, and he was actually working for the Russian government and he was trying to create proximity sensors. So basically things that were, you know, put into the ground that could detect whether humans or objects were around, um, probably, you know, for use in war and things like that. Um, and when he was making these things, he thought, this actually makes a really cool sound. Because <laughs> um, he was actually a musician as well. So instead of developing this further, like for the sensor technology, he actually made this crazy instrument. And um, it's become a bit of a cult classic. Um, but I th- we've got another clip of Theremin actually playing the instrument in the 20s. And it was sort of more of a classical sort of sounding. Here it is. It sounds wow. like the soundtrack to an old black and white film or yeah. something like that. It's really cool. Well, like, I guess we're used to thinking of, as you said, a theremin as being scary, but you can take any other instrument like a trumpet or a clarinet and play it in a really upbeat, happy way or in a really minor chord, scary sort of way. I hadn't really thought of doing it with a theremin, but there you go. Yeah, so it sounds pretty uh, sort of fancy there. We might even put a link up um, to the YouTube clip because it's really cool seeing him actually play it. Oh, yeah, we'll chuck that on our Facebook page. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, if you want to see that, listeners, just log on to Facebook and like Fuzzy Logic and we'll pop that one up there for you. Yeah. yeah. So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> I might explain what this thing looks like. So basically they look like these sort of little boxes with a big sort of um, vertical antenna um, that goes straight up and there's sort of a looped antenna on the side. And the vertical antenna is the one um, that basically controls pitch. So... Um, depending on where your hand, so your hands are sort of moving around this antenna. You're not even touching any keys or anything like that. You're just moving your hands in the air. Um, and yeah, the closer your hand is to this uh, vertical antenna, the pitch will change. And the looped uh, antenna is to do with volume. So um, that's yeah, basically. Yeah, so it's all about proximity. Like yeah. it was originally trying to develop. So the closer you get, the more. Yeah, so you get. Cool. a quote from Theremin here is that um, I conceived of an instrument that would create sound without using any mechanical energy, like the conductor of an orchestra. <laughs> Which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm ashamed um, I don't know much about this, but he also developed another cool instrument called um, the terpsitone, which is a musical floor that allowed a dancer to control pitch and volume by body position. That would be cool. Yeah. I haven't looked into that one, but um, yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. That does sound awesome. Yeah. Like just being able to, oh, and you could interpret the music and the music would influence the dance and the dance could influence the music. Yeah. Like, how artistic. Well, not quite as not quite as artistic, but using a, a similar idea for an interesting idea. There's another great YouTube clip uh, of, of a council, I think somewhere in Europe, who are trying to encourage people to use stairs to get out of um, to get out of an underground train station rather than lifts and elevators and they thought how can we do this they rigged up sensors to look at where people are standing similar to looking at where you put your hands in a theremin uh to look like a giant keyboard so you could run up and down the stairs making music that's cool that's and like the movie amazing. um big have you seen that it's like no. 80s classic um i think it's got oh, tom hanks yes. in it yeah tom hanks yeah. where they play chopsticks together <laughs> yeah. on the piano that's that's a great you gotta scene. see it Alice. it's great <laughs> um yeah, so the theremin, I mean, look, I'm certainly not an electrical engineer um, and I'd love to really properly explain how this thing works, but um, I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so basically it's got a, yeah, an electromagnetic field that's produced by a radio frequency oscillating circuit. So because our bodies have this sort of natural capacitance or the ability to hold uh, electrical charge, uh, you can use your body to disrupt the oscillator's electromagnetic field, so that's how you're sort of moving your hands in and out of um, the proximity of the antenna. Uh, and, yeah, that basically just changes the frequency um, and therefore the pitch of the sound. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. But I, I just like that story that it was actually not at all developed to be a musical instrument. It was more of a scary sensory thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's gone from an instrument of war to an instrument of... Music, yeah, and crazy spooky sounds. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, we well, have to listen out because it does kind of pop up randomly in a whole lot of different songs, and and if you listen out for it, you can find it mm. in a few different places. Yeah, I think um, people usually think the Beach Boys song "Good Vibrations" actually uses one, but oh, okay. apparently it's a slightly different instrument. Like, uh. if you want to be really technical about it, <laughs> but um, it's got that that cool that cool noise in it. The woo. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, so that's basically the theremin. Uh, I think it's a pretty cool instrument, but I want to move on to another cool instrument now, if you don't mind, Broad. No, go for it. Uh, you did mention synthesizers, and um, they're, they're pretty popular, really, in today's music, um, but I'm talking about analogue synthesizers, so have you heard of a man called Robert Moog? No. Sometimes mispronounced as Moog. Moog. Yeah, I always <laughs> said Moog because that's that's a brand of synthesizer, isn't it? Can't yeah, you Moog synthesizer. Yeah, or Moog. Sorry, Moog synthesizer. Yeah, I, look, I've been calling them Moogs for ages until I found out recently through research that it's pronounced Moog. Um, but yeah, so basically, Robert Moog. Um, I quite like this story because he was your sort of classic nerd. Um, basically, he, I've got a quote here from him. He says, electronics has been a hobby of mine ever since I was a kid, building one tube and two tube radios with my father. I built my first electronic musical instrument from a do-it-yourself article when I was maybe about 12 years old. Wow. Um, I know, it's cool, huh? And he built uh, his first theremin from a do-it-yourself article when he was 15. So his passion for this kind of stuff actually came from theremins. So he was wow. yeah, really affected by the work of theremin. Um, and yeah, by the time he was 19, he published his own do-it-yourself uh, uh, theremin article, and he was making theremins for money with uh, the help of his father. <laughs> <laughs> Good old dad. <laughs> yeah. So basically, so you obviously know about these Moog synthesizers. Mm. All this developed basically from his love of building theremins, and he made a company that specifically started to build theremins. 
um, which then moved on to making these crazy analog synthesizers that people are so into these days. Yes. So, for, forgive my ignorance, as the old-fashioned, not very computer literate person, yes. I've I think I've heard a synthesizer. What exactly is it? What does it okay. do? So, I'm talking like analog, purely electrical, no digital stuff. Okay. Right now, so we'll get on to the digital stuff. Um, so, so, yeah, what makes it analog versus digital? Well, with the synthesizer. Yeah, so the analog synthesizer basically it's it's purely like electric circuits working and the sounds being produced through the speakers that way. Where digital stuff, you're affecting. It, look again, I'm so not a, <laughs> a master you're of doing this. Doing a job so far. Yeah, like so that's um computer programming. Like so, you've actually got waves and you're um, changing the waveforms. Right, you so know. so you're manipulating it within a computer. Yeah, but through whereas coding. the analog, it's just simply travel like traveling through the electric circuits. Circuit. Yeah, okay. it's really cool. Yeah. So basically, every synthesizer starts with this thing called an oscillator, um, and it's just basically like a circuit that alternates current around it. Mm-hmm. So um, as we know, all sounds need something to be oscillating, and this is literally like the sound of electric. Uh, electricity oscillating. So it's electricity making noise. Yeah. That's actually really <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. People don't realise how cool it yeah. is. So rather than a reed <laughs> vibrating backwards and forwards on it's a clarinet or something like that, it's the, the electricity. Yeah. Awesome. And then basically the way I kind of see it is um, a lot of people are familiar with guitar pedals. Um, it's basically like one whole system that has a whole bunch of essentially guitar pedals that have different effects. So d- things that are like filters and... I don't know, like, you know, like your wah-wah pedal, it's wah-wah, like things that can change the sound, basically, and you can layer these effects on top of each other um, just by plugging all these different little ah. boxes into each other and then producing this crazy output. Um, they're <laughs> that, really cool. That's why you two sound so brilliant, don't they? Just you two. They have, they have all these guitar pedals. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, it depends on what sounds you're into, I guess. But uh, I, I definitely have um, become, you know, more into sort of electronic weird sounds as yeah. I've gotten older. Um, Which gives you an advantage, I guess, over, over a traditional musical instrument. If you play something like a trumpet or a clarinet or a flute that can only make one sound at a time, then you jump up to a piano and can play chords. I guess this is like a whole other step as in a super piano where you can be making all sorts of different sounds all at once, which mm. must be really cool. It would take a bit of brain power to follow and like patting your head and rubbing your tummy, but different <laughs> ways at once, I don't know. Yeah, and I think it's just that... Um so again, it's a, it's been a scientific sort of thing it started off as, but then artists take it to the next level where they're just really trying to create new and weird sounds. Yeah, um, yeah, it's cool. So I think we've got a bit of a montage of some um, songs with some cool synth sounds in it. So there was a huge range there because there was a bit of 80s stuff. And, yeah. And then, like, at the end, they had MGMT and then yeah. from, you know, 2000s. Yeah. So um, we had Kanye West, Flashing Lights. Yeah. I have actually recently become a Kanye fan. I thought it would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he has some really cool songs, <laughs> um, really cool noises. And we had George Clinton with Atomic Dog. That is, like, super awesome 80s. I recommend anyone look that up. And Herbie Hancock with Rocket. So Herbie Hancock was a massive... Um, synthesizer guy basically he mm. really developed that whole uh, part of electronic music he used them heaps and and he was actually like more of a um classical p 
pianist, I think, before that. And so people um, were really upset when he started moving into these weird noises. How dare you waste your talent on these horrible newfangled kids' noises, yeah. kids these days. Although um, back Aristotle 2,000 years ago has this, this you know recorded saying of, oh, kids these days, they have no respect. They do this, they do that. But one of the things he said was they make music that is horrible to the ear and that no one can understand. So I guess we've been complaining about the music that young people make for a long time. But those sounds, so they would have been digital sounds, not analogue sounds. Is well, that right or a bit of a mix? I'm not completely certain, but I did try and pick tracks um, with bands that do actually still try and use analogue synthesizers. So wow. um, I think, like, really great musicians do try and use the analogue synthesizers mm. because they apparently have a just better sounds. Yeah. Like, well, and I suppose the thing about analogue versus digital is that uh, analogue, uh, stuff could be reproduced on stage in concert, whereas mm. the digital stuff is all computer after effects, like like auto tune and those sorts of things. Yeah, although people do use those things on stage they too. Do. I think they just don't look as cool though, because when you've got an analog synth, it's like this massive thing, and yeah. it's got all these little buttons and stuff, and it just looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. See, that blows my mind thinking that those noises, and I've never really thought about it before, are the sound are the sound of electricity. But I yeah. guess in other ways, if we think about noise coming out of another instrument is the sound of air vibrating, that's pretty weird and out yeah, there Yeah, it's, so it's, it's all a bit weird. weird. Yeah, no, that was pretty much what got me into this whole thing is like the science of it. I thought electricity making sound, that is a cool idea, really yeah. cool idea. Um, so, yeah, basically uh, Robert Moog, he... He was into electronics as a kid, but he did actually go on to do um, a bachelor's degree in physics, and he also became an electrical engineer, and um, he's just an all-around cool dude. It does sound pretty yeah. awesome. He yeah. wasn't a musician, though, so he, he just got into theremins and started working with musicians from there, um, but he was essentially a scientist, so mm. that's, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> Um, but shall we move on? Yeah, you've got one more uh, electronic music scientist for us. Yes, we did discuss um, a little bit about digital music. So have you heard of a guy called Max Matthews, either of you? No, if no. I'm honest. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of Max. Well, I hadn't heard of him either. <laughs> <until> <laughs> that makes very, me feel better. <laughs> very recently. So he's uh, an American and he also studied electrical engineering. So there's a bit of a theme going on here. <laughs> Um, but basically he was the first guy, well, one of the first guys to, um, create sound generating software for computers. So he created this thing called Music One, um, in 1957 at the Bell's Labs. Have you heard of the, those labs? Is that Alexander Graham Bell? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, so started they started off with his work. Yeah, 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 essentially. Um, and, th- and these labs, they just had tons of money back in those days to do cool <laughs> science things. Um, and so they basically funded this program and, he made this, um, yeah, this music program. And in 1961, um, Matthews actually arranged the accompaniment. I can never say that word. Accompaniment. Accompaniment. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. Uh, of the song Daisy Bell. So do either of you know that song? Yes, we do, loosely. Mm, loosely. Well, um, we'll play uh, a clip of it. It's pretty cool. Who could say no to that? Computers could be so right. (laughs) 
It's very sweet, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is lovely. Yeah, so that was in 1961. So that's basically where the birth of um, computer software, um, musical software, came from. And a really interesting part to this song was that um, the author, Arthur C. Clarke, was actually there um, at the labs when they were developing this song. And he was just so blown away by it that he told... Um, Stanley Kubrick to use it in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh-huh. Now, I tried to look this up before I got here because um, I couldn't remember. Apparently, you know, the scene where Hal, the computer's being um, taken apart and he sort of he starts singing this song, apparently. But I don't know if they actually used that original clip of the real music or if they just, it was just, um, you know, I don't know, inspired. inspired. <laughs> That's the word, inspired by it. Mm. Um but yeah, I think it just sounds awesome. <laughs> and that was com- that, that voice was completely computer generated. Yeah, that being the cool bit leading to our robot computer voices. That's right. Yeah, and no one had ever really done that before. So yeah. um, uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, That's really cool. And obviously, from there, we've got um, just digital music everywhere. And um, I think the coolest part that's come out of all this is that. Basically, anyone at home can get this sort of software and just make their own music. Um, and it's just crazy the things you can do. You can get all sorts of crazy sounds through your keyboard. I remember <laughs> when I was a kid and I had a little Casio mm. and you could press the um, demonstration thing. It would just play like a little song for you <laughs> and trumpet yeah. sounds and stuff. <laughs> it was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I remember my Casio keyboard too. Yeah. I have one of them. They're Definitely. awesome. <laughs> Um, well, we might have a little talk in a sec about how you can make some of your own electronic music at home and start fiddling away. We don't want anyone electrocuting themselves, but... Uh, no, that would be very bad. <laughs> you make some very interesting music of your own then. Uh, but uh, we will have a chat about how you can uh, hack a radio, not the one you're listening to us on, uh, <laughs> but an old radio, and uh, talk about how you can make your own electronic music. But we'll do that after this song. Fight of the Concords there, staying home and playing their synthesizers for us with Inner City Pressure. The time's now 24 past 12. It's 30 degrees outside. Definitely a beautiful Sunday. Hope you're enjoying yourself, whatever you're up to. Um, but, of course, you must be because you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on, here on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. And if you've been listening earlier, today we've been talking about electronic music with Blair and she's been telling us the stories of some of the amazing scientists that develop this stuff. And uh, now you guys have the chance to be a scientist because uh, Blair's going to talk about radio hacking. Now, she's brought in uh, a very old radio here, which is uh, completely taken apart. She's bared the circus circus board the circuit board <laughs> the circuit board and um so we can see what's going on in there and uh, Blair talk us through what you're actually going to do today um yeah so basically this is something I found in a book called uh hardware hacking by um, another scientist called Nicholas Collins um and it's basically like this whole movement where people would take apart either old radios or old uh, electronic toys and just start messing around with the circuits to see what kind of weird sounds they can make Okay. So what I've got here is a, an old radio. It's battery powered, which is the most important part <laughs> of this demonstration because if we plugged it in the wall and you put your hands on the circuit, which is what I'm going to do, um, you'd be in a lot of trouble, I'd right. say. So, right. so if you Major try- flashing safety yeah. tip. Yes, yeah. so, so we'll need to reiterate that several times, I think. Yeah, if you want to try this at home, boys and girls, make sure you get mum and dad's permission and yep. you use a battery-powered radio. Battery-powered radio. Unplug it radio. from the wall. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, 
I've I've opened up the radio, totally taken it apart, so that the green part of the circuit board is um, available to put my hands on, so where the solders are. So the other thing you have to be careful of is that they can be quite sharp, these little metal solder bits. Um, and I'm going to turn it on. All right. And I'll place my hands on the circuit and see if I can make some weird noises, basically. So it's sort of like a way that you can play... Uh, a radio like an instrument yeah, cool so, so listeners you may hear some strange sounds over the next 30 seconds or so but don't adjust your radio it's just us playing with a radio in here yeah. and, and it, will, it will sound a little bit like a radio's um your radio's gone a bit funny but here we are it's we on let's have a listen So to make these sounds, Blair's actually got her fingers on the circuit board. She, you gave him a little lick beforehand, I noticed, Blair. I did. Why, why did you do that? Um, because it actually helps uh, conduct the electricity a bit better. So okay. basically, uh, in this demonstration, you're actually becoming part of the circuit, which is why you obviously can't plug it into the wall, um, because <laughs> you could, yeah, very much damage yourself. So... Um, yeah, basically you pop your hands on the circuit and you have to find the sweet spot. So I found like a little area where um, I'm obviously affecting the capacitance or whatever, mm. um, or the resistors, so um, so you can make some weird sounds. Now, they might not sound all that musical um, to It depends us. on your definition yeah. of music, but yeah. yes. Yeah. But basically um, what people can do is find an interesting sound and sample it, as they say in the music biz, <laughs> um, and, and put it on loops and things and use it sort of like rhythmically or um, as an interesting yeah, background sound and songs, so... So for those people who want to try this at home but don't have one of these really old, and, I, and I'm trying to think how old the radio would be, but it is quite an old sort of at least tens of years old radio. Where did you find this radio that you were allowed to tear apart without causing uh, mums and dads headaches at home with kids breaking into the... Uh, I'm pretty sure it only cost me a couple of bucks from Tiny's Green Shed in Mitchell. Okay. Yeah. So from tip shops. Yep, is tip spot. Yeah, or, you know, op shops. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if I did find, like, in my cupboard somewhere an old toy that i haven't played with in ages that that made electronic noises could that do a similar sort of thing as long as it's battery powered okay <laughs> you yeah. can try anything i'd say cool <laughs> yeah cool. so, so battery here? powder is the key here ladies and gentlemen boys and girls we don't want any fuzzy listeners going out and uh, ending up with very fuzzy hair from, um, <laughs> from electricity. Yeah, so I can I can give you the link again. To There's actually an online PDF booklet of all these really cool musical um, ha- hacking sort of activities that you can do that Nicholas Collins has put up. Oh, fantastic. Um, which is where I basically got this activity from. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he sort of says as long as uh, older radios are usually better than newer ones and larger ones are easier to work with than tinier ones, like this one I've got here is quite big really mm. it's about 30 centimeters by 25 centimeters yeah That's decent size yep. yeah um yeah so i think it's pretty cool awesome. <laughs> awesome now it does make some really strange noises do you want to hear some uh, more well look what i might do is it's almost <laughs> time for us to finish up so i'll get you to play us out in a sec blair um, but i'm going to wrap everything up first thanks for joining us in the studio today blair and sharing your electronic music stories oh no worries and thank you for coming in to alice and sharing some of your science with us thanks for having me it's been a pleasure, and thanks for listening out there in Radio Land. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's show, you can download the podcast online 
from fuzzylogiconn2xx.podbean.com or you can just download it from iTunes. Just type Fuzzy Logic into iTunes and find us there. And if you haven't liked us on Facebook, you better because... Um, We've got the link up there of Leon Theremin playing his own instrument, which is a quite a funny little clip. Um, and we will provide that link for radio hacking, so you guys can go and check it out and give it a go yourselves. But I'm going to hand it over to Blair now to take us out with a little bit more of radio hacking. Go for it, Blair. And you've been listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio.